From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. All right, here we are rocketed on the Automotive ADHD Show, heard around the world as a podcast and on the radio, 91.7 KLZR, Saturday mornings in Southern Colorado. My name is Matt West. I am here to talk about cars, and you have tuned into the correct car show. I have a fun show for you. Happy Labor Day, by the way. Uh, it is, of course, a day to take some time off, enjoy yourself, enjoy the family, enjoy wrenching on some cars. You've been working hard. <laughs> You've been working hard to afford the cars. You deserve it. Now, of course, if you are working on this Labor Day, then I want to thank you for that. That is fantastic. You make the world go round. And of course, I realize a great number of my listeners are in other countries. And you might be wondering, what the hell am I talking about? I know, I know. We celebrate Labor Day here. It is a way to thank the workers, to thank the people who make everything work. So that is uh, that is what we do. So I hope you've been enjoying your three-day weekend. And um, I have a fun show in the works for you today. Going to be talking a little bit about speed limits. New York wants to pass a bill to require car manufacturers to um, have speed limiters installed in all cars after January 1st, 2024. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about a 27 liter Ford Crown Victoria. It's a tank engine. That's really cool. Um, And And uh, there is a gentleman who has had the first medical procedure conducted, uh, at least powered, by a Rivian uh, RT1 pickup truck. (laughs) This is, uh, he had a vasectomy, by the way. And he was powered by his truck. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it. That is going to be... um, pretty interesting. And I have a few other fun things to talk about. Look, it's Labor Day. I'm having fun hanging out. You might be as well. We're just going to kick back, enjoy talking a little bit about uh, cars. Now, ladies, gentlemen, um, TVR Cerbras. If you are listening a few weeks ago, you know what that's about. Uh, anyway, let's uh, before we do that, I want to talk about how we have won as car enthusiasts. We have we have won in the debate about buttons. Yeah, yeah, I've talked about this a few times before, but I've never taken a hardline stance on it, which is that buttons inside cars are a lot better than touchscreens. You might agree with me on that. I talked a little bit about this uh, a few months ago during the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. Uh, when I gave my recap, my experience attending the hill climb and also talking to racing driver uh, Jimmy Ford, um, there was also an issue with uh, Randy Popest's car. Now, Randy Popest is a racing driver. He often drives for uh, Motor Trend as well. He's their you know, performance driver, their professional driver. Uh, and he was racing in a Tesla. And the Tesla, uh, built by uh, Unplugged Performance, was a very good race car. It was very fast, but the problem was is that if you knew anything about Pikes Peak this year, you know that the weather conditions were terrible. It was cold. Visibility sucked. There was even snow up by Devil's Playground, and I'm not speaking from secondhand accounts. No, I was there at Devil's Playground at four in the morning, and there was snow on the ground, and it was foggy, and you couldn't see. There was ice. I, I mean, I was there, okay? So it was, it was pretty bad, but Randy couldn't turn on the defroster in his Tesla race car because 
it uses a touchscreen, the big center touchscreen, the big old iPad in the dash, basically, on a Tesla. Um, well, he couldn't use it with his racing gloves on. It wouldn't work with the touchscreen. And he couldn't take his gloves off because he was in the middle of driving 100 miles an hour uh, up a mountain in the fog. And um, so he couldn't turn his defroster on, which was a problem. Now, if he had a physical button, uh, this wouldn't be an issue. He could reach down without even looking, feel the knob, feel the button, and turn it on and carry about his racing with a now defogged windshield. He could do that. So we have, in a motorsports context at least, proven that buttons are better. Randy Popst is testament to that. And um, now the thing is, an actual study has come out now. This study has come out of uh, Sweden, and it says that buttons are better. And here's how they tested this. So they drove... um, they they drove a couple of cars back to back, okay? And they took a BMW iX as well as a 17-year-old Volvo. Uh, they didn't say which Volvo it was, but that 17-year-old Volvo would probably be one of the P2 chassis Volvos, so like an S60 or uh, XC70, something like that. And what they did is they lined them up side by side and both drove them on the highway at exactly 68 miles an hour, which is one mile an hour short of another great number. However, however, they, they, they drove them side by side and assigned the drivers a number of tasks that they had to do. Things like turning on the climate control, turning on the heated seats, turning up and down the radio. There were a number of tasks that they were uh, assigned to do. And here's the thing. In the Volvo, which had physical buttons and dials, um, the they measured the distance it took for the driver to complete those tasks. Instead of timing it, they measured distance. And that's an important thing here, and we'll get into why. But um, it took the driver 306 meters to complete those tasks um, using the buttons and knobs in the car. Now, in comparison, and this is where it gets... Um, pretty significant here the vehicle with the touchscreen the bmw ix uh that took 900 meters to complete the exact same tasks that is a massive difference think of it this way you know that's 900 meters that your eyes aren't on the road and that's that's not good that's not good. That's that's a huge, huge distance that your your eyes aren't on the road, that you're not looking at, and you're looking at the touchscreen. Um, and that's a problem. 306 meters, again, for buttons, 900 meters for uh, the touchscreen. And, uh, and and where this becomes where this becomes an issue is anytime you're driving, anytime you're driving, you are traveling a distance and that distance is time that you can hit something. That's distance that something can run out in front of you, a child, an animal, uh, a landmine, whatever, in case those happen to be running in front of you at any given moment. But that is definitely um, an issue. And uh, and, and to convert this here uh, for my Friends in America, where I live, I know this this was done in Sweden, so it's you know it's meters, it's metric, you know, um, and that's uh, clearly an inferior inferior uh, measurement. That is uh, two thousand nine hundred and fifty two feet. Um, using the correct form of measurement here. So <laughs> I know all my European listeners are are shaking their head right now, shaking their fists at their stereo, their podcast player, whatever. Um, but, okay, the point stands that buttons are better. Now, the thing is, okay, if you assume that 
That's 900 meters that your eyes are off the road, and the buttons are in 300 meters, 306, that your eyes are also off the road. It's a shorter distance, but there is another layer to this, which is that with buttons, with dials, especially in a car, perhaps your own car that you are familiar with, you've had for a long time, you've had the time to build up the muscle memory of where those buttons and knobs are. You don't even need to take your eyes off the road. That's the thing with buttons. You don't even need to take your eyes off the road. I mean, you can be driving, one hand on the wheel, looking forward, turn on your defroster. You don't, you don't even need to look at it. So even comparing it apples for apples doesn't work because a touchscreen muscle memory doesn't work as well. Now, sure, some functions maybe on the home screen of the touchscreen, maybe that works. But especially if you have to go into any menus or pages to do any of those functions, it really is tough to say that you have muscle memory and the ability to know that you tapped on the screen exactly where that little hitbox or that button is and exactly in the right way to go into this next menu and then tap in another spot. Trust me, it's really hard. Have you have you ever you used your smartphone blindfolded? Um, I, I, I don't know. Now, granted, high schoolers have a somehow an innate ability to use their touchscreen keyboards on their phone underneath their desk without looking at it and type perfectly. But we're not talking about high schoolers. They're another species, really. So uh, aside from that, if you've ever tried to use your smartphone uh, blindfolded, you'll know what that's like. Um, and so the whole point is that as car enthusiasts, we like we tend to like older cars and buttons tend to be the centerpiece of the control system in those cars. And buttons don't have to look bad. People are like, ooh, I like the touchscreen. It looks so clean. It looks so good. Yeah, it does, but a nice button setup doesn't have to be bad. I'll use one of my own cars as an example. The Honda S2000 has a, a very driver-focused array of buttons. It's not ugly. In fact, I would argue it's a great-looking interior. All the buttons face the driver on this these two stacks of the dash that kind of point towards you. And... And uh, you've got everything you need, your radio controls, your climate controls, within a hand's width from the steering wheel. You can keep your hand on the wheel and touch the button still because it's right behind it. Great design. Just because it has buttons doesn't mean it has to look bad. I'm just saying. So there you go. Science has proven that buttons are the winner. Fight me on it. And also fight science because they did more research than I did. Now, hey, coming up, we're going to talk about how New York is going to put speed limiters into cars and just maybe, if you live there, what you can do about it. That's coming up next, right here. Did you know there's a rare but serious condition affecting one out of every million? Most are born with it, and despite decades of research, doctors struggle to find a cure. The truth is, thousands of people simply don't know what cars are. For those affected, things are grim, but recent developments show promising success. New clinical trials using breakthrough audio technology have shown a 69% improvement in patients with the most severe symptoms. Treatments vary, but one day we may see a cure. More information is available at ThrottleWarrior.com. All right, here we are rocking it on the Automotive ADHD Show, heard right here as a podcast. Also on the radio, 91.7 KLZR. That car sound was 
courtesy of Josh Maldonado. He, speaking of Labor Day, speaking of jobs, Josh has the coolest job. I mean, for one, he's a longtime listener of the show. He's been sending car sounds in probably since I started doing this show. And uh, Josh is fantastic. However, his job is also really cool. He works at a shop that specializes in NSXs. Yes, and specializes in doing boosted NSXs, which is exactly what you heard right there. That was a boosted NSX. I love NSXs, and I think if you add boost, that's even cooler. I mean, they're they're fantastic. I do aspire one day to own an NSX, but knowing me, it's going to have to be it's probably going to have to be the worst example of an NSX I can find, and then I'll spend all the money I saved by buying a crappy NSX. I will have spent double that trying to make it nice. That's um, that's what I do with cars. That's why you listen. You listen to a guy like that. Those are my credentials. That's what I did with my S2K. I bought the cheapest one I could find. In fact, it was the cheapest clean title one in the country at the time, uh, and, and, and now I've spent a lot more money fixing it than if I had just bought a clean one. But uh, <laughs> you know what? You know what? We don't do these things for rational reasons. Of course, Josh, uh, I want to thank you for sending that car sound in. I want to thank you for also being such a longtime listener of the show. You are fantastic. It makes my day knowing that you enjoy the show, and I absolutely love that. And those car sounds are cool. And I am I, I won't say I'm jealous that you work around NSXs and fun cars every day. I, I won't say I'm jealous. I might be, but I won't say it. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, um, there we go. Hey, before I talk about uh, before I talk about speed limits in New York, I want to touch on just a really quick thing, which is Toyota. I love Toyota, right? You know this. You know this as a listener. I I've I own several Toyota products. Uh, none of them are new. However, Toyota is uh, doing some interesting things with some of their electric car concepts. And a uh, recent, uh, some recent information was, you could say, maybe leaked by the Chinese Ministry of Industry, uh, who I guess has to approve things and cars and stuff that gets sold in China. Toyota is working on, I guess, having its one of its electric cars uh, approved for sale in China. And, um, I, you know, it's an electric car. Who cares? Whatever. It's basically, uh, they're saying that it's going to be te- uh, Toyota's competition to the Tesla Model 3. Yeah, that's fine. Electric cars are great. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're a little soulless. You know, it's like, what's the difference between one electric car and the other? You have the same drivetrains, essentially. There's no character. All the character of the car has to be made up. The the character you lose in having an internal combustion engine has to be made up for in design and styling and quality and materials, things like that. And um, that being said, um, the name is is particularly problematic to me. That's what I want to comment on here Um, because it's called the BZ3. What, what the hell does BZ3 stand for? And it's apparently an offshoot of a concept car Toyota had uh, debuted earlier this year called the BZSDN. Well, what the hell is a BZSDN? Like, th- these names don't, don't make sense. Now, this is going to be similar, reportedly, and hat tip to um, Adam Ismail from Jalopnik uh, for this information, but this is supposedly going to be similar to the BZ4X, which is currently... Um, uh, in manufacture, in being manufactured in China with a uh, in cooperation with another company, a manufacturing firm, they're already working on these things. We have seen the BZ4X. It's like a Rav4, but it's electric. BZ4X, BZ3, BZ3SDN. 
What the heck do any of these names mean? They're, they're meaningless. They mean nothing. Okay, Toyota is, and, you know, I, I love their products for the most part, uh, but they can do things. They can do wrong. I don't love them so much to say they can't do wrong, even though you can probably quote me saying, Toyota can do no wrong in a previous episode. <laughs> uh, but that said... Um, you know, I've called them out before with the uh, key fob subscriptions and stuff, uh, subscription service for using your key fob. Ridiculous. Um, but but the naming here is like they're going the route of, um, I think, luxury car manufacturers. You know, you think of uh, Mercedes, the names of Mercedes cars tend to be complicated and have numbers and letters and not actual words because it's sophisticated. Uh, the same thing with BMW, the same thing with virtually all other luxury car manufacturers. Even Lexus took this up. You know, Lexus being an offshoot of Toyota, being Toyota, Lexus being sold as the luxury brand here in the United States, um, even in the 90s took this, um, took this approach with its LS series vehicles, LS 300 or whatever, uh, IS 300 as well, uh, the Alteza, the IS 300, by the way, that's a great car, the, as it was called the Alteza in Japan, um, the home of the, um, that vehicle was the home of the 3SGE Beams, which is a very cool engine, uh, and they had, they were sold here in the United States with, um, uh, GE2Js, which is uh, naturally aspirated 2JZ. I digress. However, um, this is no, this isn't, isn't new. So Toyota's done this before, uh, you know, using letters and numbers together to make a car name. But this isn't sold as a Lexus. This isn't sold as anything like that. This is, this vehicle is being sold as a Toyota. And that to me means it should be called something like Corolla, uh, Avalon, maybe, you know, something like that. You know, it's, it doesn't make sense. Camry, Corolla, those are Toyotas to me. And I think you would have better appeal as a manufacturer if you stuck with that. If Toyota stuck with calling things as they're, as customers are already used to hearing, I think you'll have a much better time with that. Uh, a customer's going to say, oh, it's a Toyota. What's a BZ4XZY213? What does that mean? It means nothing. It is meaningless. I mean, sure, maybe... You know, in, in years past, the name of a car, if it had numbers in it, like something 200 or say S2000, I'll use my own car as an example again, um, you know, that the 2000 stands for the engine displacement. That's 2000 cc's, which is two liters, right? But it's meaningless in an electric car. You don't have displacement. Maybe it can mean kilowatts. Okay, does, is three, does the BZ3 stand for three kilowatts? Well, that's too low. 3000 kilowatts? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. It doesn't make any sense. And if you're trying to sell to first time electric car buyers who are leery of maybe their first electric car purchase or maybe a little more conservative about this, you want to bring them in with something familiar. They say, oh, I remember my Corolla. I had a Corolla when I was in high school. I loved it. It ran for a million miles. OK, this is the new Corolla EV. And they'll say, oh, Corolla, I like the Corolla. It's all about that association. That association of stuff like that is also the same reason I will say in a hypocrite, uh, I'll be a little bit of a hypocrite and say manufacturers bringing back nameplates for things that don't make sense um, just because they want to cash in on the nameplate value of a car. You know, ooh, people remember these for being really good. Um, you know, that's, uh, I'll, I'll be a hypocrite here. I think if the car isn't close enough to what the original was supposed to represent, maybe you should call it something different. But something like a commuter car that's practical, maybe it's a crossover, whatever. Calling it a Corolla or as part of the Corolla series of cars wouldn't necessarily violate 
um, those those ideals. And I think it would be beneficial. So I, I okay, yeah, Toyota I think's got to th- rethink this whole BZX4Z123 uh, LMNOP uh, naming scheme. I think they need to. Uh, rethink that. Uh, Tesla, of course, is kind of going this route too with Model 3, Model S, Model Y. I guess they can't use Model T. That's Ford. But uh, (laughs) same difference here. I think cars should have cool names. I mean, I really do. Cars should definitely have cool, interesting names. Toyota has interesting names for cars. I mean, Supra. That's a cool name for a car. I mean, a BMW. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, But that is a cool name. I I enjoy that. So, well, you know what? You know what? I think this is still early stuff. It's still early stuff. Now, the BZ4X crossover, um, that is the one that currently exists, and there have been a number of issues with them. And Toyota's first foray into a true plug-in electric um, haven't been the greatest with the BZ4X. They've been having recalls. They've been having issues. So I would wait it out. I would wait that out. In fact, I would wait out the whole electric car thing and just keep driving my 40-year-old Corollas and Hondas and stuff, so that's fine by me. But, you know, the name, the name. Come on, a name makes a car. A name really does. So anyway, hey, I want to talk about this next because uh, this is really important if you are an auto enthusiast, and you probably are. You're listening to this show, and if you're not an auto enthusiast by now, uh, I I seek to change that. You, I will convert you. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, yeah, I'm on my crusade to convert people into loving cars. What's what's wrong with that? I love that. But um, New York City um, has been known for some questionable laws in the past and doing different things. But uh, the newest thing that they have done is they have implemented a program with the entire city's fleet of 30,000 vehicles. Now, these are vehicles owned by the city. Uh, these are vehicles used for um, sanitation workers, um, you know, parking officials, police. Basically, all of their government vehicles have been enrolled in a program that will... Um, use what they call intelligent speed assistance. And this is going to basically, it's, to put it simply, the com- the car is going to have a computer that's going to know the speed limit of whatever road you're on. Now, is it doing that via GPS? Is it doing that via reading road signs? That's not clear. The idea is it is going to know whatever the speed limit is, and it is going to limit you to that speed limit. And they are implementing this with all of their government vehicles. That's fine. It's their government vehicles. You know what? They can do that. The problem here... The problem here is because um, a Manhattan state senator, his name's Brad Holliman, or Holliman, uh, however that's pronounced, um, he proposed some legislation a few weeks back that would require any, any consumer vehicle to be manufactured after the date of January 1st, 2024 to have the same system. Uh, and they say, quote, with advanced safety technology. And the uh, advanced safety technology in the bill is listed as um, being the active intelligent speed assistance, ISA, and active or advanced emergency braking, which is AEB. I'm giving you these these definitions because you might see them pop up elsewhere. Uh, And then they also want them to have emergency lane keeping systems. Uh, And there's a bunch of these. Uh, Basically, um, there's blind spot stuff. They want to mandate that. They want to mandate a number of things. They also want to mandate event data recorders, much like an aircraft. Uh, a, a, the F, 
the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, requires that airplanes have, they call it the little black box that recorders, uh, that records everything that happens inside the cockpit, that records every movement made on the controls, that records things about engines and, you know, the, the current status of the airplane. Um, now, I, I spent some time working in uh, Civil Air Patrol and in search and rescue right out of high school uh, as a volunteer. And I will tell you from personal experience that the black boxes aren't black. They're usually orange with a bunch of high-vis reflective stuff on them. The the idea is you're supposed to find them in a plane crash, um, you know, looking through rubble. That's the idea. They get called black boxes. That's a misnomer. But the fact is they want to have something similar in cars. And I see this as a problem. And I'll break this down. I see, for one, the event data recorders as a little bit of a problem because that delves into the realm of personal privacy. How much of this data is actually being recorded? And is it going to be used to incriminate you in something meaningless? If you're issued a speeding ticket and you want to fight that speeding ticket, um, is are they is the judge going to say, well, we'll look at your event data recorder and see who's really right? And what if there's a malfunction with the event data recorder? Um, because vehicles are not maintained to the standard that airplanes are. Airplanes in commercial service that have to be tested and every single little detail has a checklist that has to be done and a maintenance checklist that has to be done at certain time intervals. Um, cars are not maintained on that level, not on any any level. Uh, like that. And you could have malfunctions with your event data recorder that the, could then be a problem if something happens. I think it's a problem just to be recording that information in general. Likewise, it could also get you out of a ticket. It's a double-edged sword. Say you get a speeding ticket and you're like, that was bogus. And then you say, here, here's the data from my car's black box. I was not speeding. Uh, or at least it was not indicated that I was speeding. But then they'll probably say, well, your car, we can't trust the maintenance on that. We're going to go with the official report. It's, see, it's it, it goes both ways. So I think just not having it at all is probably uh, the better solution here. Now, let's get to the speed thing, the active intelligent speed assistance. Um, and uh, this, this is similar to something that hap- has happened now in the European Union. And now the European Union has already instated this requirement and said that this will come into effect July 2024. For my friends listening in Europe, this is already going on for you if you're in a country that is within the uh, EU. And the thing is, the good news with the European, implement- European implementation of this system is that it is passive. Um, the system would alert the driver that, hey, heads up, you're going you're going a little fast. It would alert the driver, but it would do nothing else. Um, the privacy concern here, and some Europeans are concerned, that if this data is, um, you know, transmitted to, like, law enforcement actively, if there's, you know, a, a, you know, a constant connection between the vehicle and a central system that tracks this, you would speed in the car, and then you'd just be issued a ticket through the mail. Um, that's a problem. I don't think we need that. But right now, it's passive. All it would do is tell you that, hey, heads up, you're speeding. It's like the little chime in initial D with the uh, A86. You know, once he goes over uh, 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour, it starts dinging. Ding, 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 ding. If you ever watch that, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never watched that, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's okay, because it's not really important. Um, but the thing is, where the bill in New York differs is... That it is not the, quote, passive implementation of this style of system. No, they want, in New York, they want this to be active. Meaning that if the computer in the car says, you're on a 35 and you're doing 38, that's a problem. I'm going to slow you back down to 35. That means 
the computer is actually in control of the car. This is entirely different from the European one. I don't like the European's implementation of this. I think this doesn't need to exist at all. I will come out on the record saying this doesn't need to exist in any way, shape, or form. However, the passive system is probably better than the active system, which, again, the passive one just tells you that you're speeding. Uh, some cars already have that. If you run Waze, for instance, if you run Google Maps and you have that configured, um, you'll, it'll, it'll show your speed via GPS, and then it'll tell you, hey, you're, you're speeding. You might be, you know, 5 over, 10 over, whatever. It'll tell you that. That's a lot similar to this. But in New York, they are coming heavy-handed with this. They don't want you to speed for any reason whatsoever. And that's a problem for reasons of personal freedom, I would say. Um, also, reasons in emergencies. You would, if you say you were driving your pregnant wife to the hospital, she was about to give birth, and you had to get there fast, which is arguably a justifiable reason to speed, uh, even is protected in some cases of the law, that if it is a genuine emergency, and that calling emergency services in an ambulance would take too long or would be life-threatening, you'll probably get out of speeding in this case um well that just wouldn't happen you would be in a hurry you'd be like i gotta get my wife to the hospital let's go uh and then the car would say oh hey you, you can't speed it's, it's uh 65 here it's not 75 and then it would back you back down again i think that's a major problem again that's a violation of your personal property rights that's a violation of your freedom that's all of the above okay so i'll come out and saying i don't like that um now here's the next thing uh what what is is speed really the problem because I'm going to argue this. I'm going to argue this here, okay? I did some research, and I took a, I looked at a survey uh, from the National Motor Vehicle, it's called the National Motor Vehicle Crash Causation Survey, and this is made by the National Highway Traffic, uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. There we go. I got to get those words out. Slow down. Re read the words. Um, but uh, the this is a study, and it's from 2008. It is a little bit dated. Uh, I, I will say it is a little bit dated. 2008 was a little while ago now, uh, but it's the most recent information I could find that actually addressed all of these points. Um, and the fact is, the way we drive cars isn't that different than 2008. If anything, we have more distractions now, but cars have also become safer. Cars have been able to travel more quickly. They could travel faster and be safer in doing so. So, but let's just take that with a grain of salt. It's a little bit older, but I don't think where it counts, I don't think this study is going to be any different than if something was more recent. And it lists um, a number of crashes from July 3rd, 2005 to December 31st, 2007. That was the window of this survey. Uh, and by the way, it's a 42-page study, or make that 47-page study, uh, if you want to read it. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating read. It is riveting. There's graphs and data, and, and it's really long. And anyway, the gist of it here, the piece of information that is important is that in that time frame, there were 5,471 crashes. And... That and, and, and they listed a number of the critical pre-crash events or the causation, the things that kind of led up to the crash itself. Um, you know, Jeremy Clarkson, I think, once famously said, and I might be misquoting him, but it's uh, basically it's not the speed that's get, that gets you. It's suddenly becoming stationary. That's what gets you. So, yeah, obviously the cause of a crash is that you crashed. I mean, that is the crash. But the things leading up to that crash are what's relevant. And traveling too fast as contributing to a factor of vehicle uh, control loss, losing control of the vehicle because you were traveling too fast 
for the vehicle to handle that speed for your suspension, your brakes, your tires, your grip, all of the above to handle that. That accounted for 195 crashes in this study window out of 5,471. Now, what contributed to the biggest number of crashes? Now, that would be 2,185 crashes was the biggest single cause of crashes. The, the number there is 2,185, and that was caused by turning at a crossing or intersection. Intersections and crossings are more dangerous by a factor of 20, 20 times more dangerous than traveling too fast. So are we banning intersections? I don't think we're banning intersections. This bill in New York doesn't say anything about banning intersections. Probably because, you know, New York is New York City in specific is is, is entirely composed of intersections. Um driving off at of the edge of the road. Uh that was 1080 crashes. Um here's another one. Traveling in the same direction as another vehicle. 643 crashes. Um traveling in the opposite direction. I don't even know how you can list that as a cause. That means Passing traffic like normally on a two-lane road. That was that was seven crashes. But traveling in the same direction, people accidentally merging into the same way, going the wrong way up a road, that accounted for nearly um almost almost two times as many crashes as speeding. Being stopped in traffic, stopping abruptly in traffic for whatever reason, that counted for six hundred and forty-three crashes in this study window. So being stopped caused more crashes than traveling too fast. Is speeding really our problem? That's what I want to know. I would say looking at those numbers, you can interpret studies and data in pretty much any way you want. Um, that is, that is tends to be how, how things work statistically. In statistics, you can kind of make statistics in a lot of ways work to support whatever point you have. That's, and that's done in a lot of arguments. I get that. Um, but just looking at these numbers, and these numbers are a little dated, but I don't think they are dated in any way that is relevant to um to 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 what we have going on now i don't think there's any issue with that and is speed really the problem i would argue and i talked about this on a show months ago months and months ago um that i believe the driver's education system here in the united states is inadequate i believe drivers that are wholeheartedly unqualified to be driving are permitted to drive excuse me and that was uh and that's that's a cause of a lot of crashes and, you know, people who are unskilled in handling their car, people who are unskilled and uninformed on the dynamics of a car. I mean, so many people who drive probably can't tell you what the difference between understeer and oversteer is. If you drive a car, I think you are obligated to know what that is and know how to correct for that. Especially, you know, people might say, well, I'm never driving that hard. I'm not driving on track. I'm not trying to race anybody. Well, what if it snows? What if it snows? You need to know that because suddenly by adding, for a, for instance, snow, your threshold of actual traction has now been reduced. Your actual speed at which you will break loose and break traction has been drastically reduced. Um, and, and the way your vehicle handles is going to be a lot the same way it would in a performance context on track. You just on track, it's dry and the threshold of losing that traction is a lot higher. Um, th there's important dynamics of vehicle control that I think every driver should know. Uh, weight transfer is a huge one that I never even knew myself until I started, uh, when I was right out of college and I started doing autocross and things like that, um, that I didn't even understand the fundamentals of that. And that's one of those things that... I think as drivers, we should at least endeavor to at least know about it 
Um, and pre preferably, you would at some point be able to go experience the effects of these different dynamics, whether that's in a snowy parking lot in your daily driver or whether that's on a racetrack in your project track car. I think all, all is fair game. As long as you can experience that in some way, that's important. And that's one problem. Our driver's education system is severely flawed. And the argument, well, speed kills. Well, by that logic, everyone who drove on the Autobahn in an unrestricted section of Autobahn would be dead. They would just be, you would speed and you would just die. Um, and that's not what happens. It's, it's all about skill. It's all about qualifying drivers. How do we do that? I think we need an entire revamping of our driver's education system here because uh, it's way too lenient. I mean, it's like a multiple choice test. You go drive around the block. Yo, you stop at an intersection. You make a left turn. You merge. Like, it's so basic. And compare that to other countries. I'll use... Um, some of my friends in Europe, as an example, it's much harder to get a driver's license, and sometimes it's more expensive. One could argue, well, it's too expensive, that's too hard. Yet, countries where it's harder to get a license, maybe it's more expensive, maybe not, but at least where the threshold of training is much higher. Uh, Norway's a great example of that. Um, they tend to have less issues with actual deaths caused by crashes. They also tend to have a lot less issues of distracted drivers. Drivers are reminded because they're more trained, they understand what's going on. They are reminded of the consequences, too, of, you know, not handling your vehicle well uh, and also being distracted. That's one issue we have now that definitely doesn't factor as much into this 2008 study I cited because in 2008, there weren't as many screens in cars. Sure, you had cell phones, but 2008, the first iPhone was coming out. I remember when that happened. The first iPhone came out. Everything before that, you maybe had Blackberries and flip phones. Um, the level of distractions in cars is significantly higher. And they're saying, oh, speeding deaths are increasing. We've been told that time and time again. Uh, Transportation Secretary B Pete Buttigieg says that, yeah, speeding deaths are on the rise. Well, maybe deaths related to high speed are on the rise, but was the speed really the cause of the problem? Should we not be regulating distractions in cars like we're regulating speed? Speed might have been a factor in the severity of the crash, but... By no means was it the cause. And when you look at the data from a while ago and you compare that to now, it definitely seems like distractions are causing the problems and underskilled drivers. So anyway, there you go. That's that's enough heavy statistics and and stuff for you there. What what you can do about this is if you live in New York, um, if you live in New York and you're directly affected by this, um, you can absolutely uh, write your congressmen, write your state representatives, call them, do whatever, uh, and tell them that this is not something New Yorkers want. Um, and and this is something that needs to not happen. And, you know, if this can if if this doesn't happen in New York, that's going to be a good thing, because if New York does it, other states will also follow suit. I imagine California would probably be one of the first to do it. If not, if not, they're already doing it. I don't know. No, they're not. But um, they would be one of the first to follow suit with that. And it would just set an example and other places would do it. So it's important that this doesn't happen in New York. And uh, there you go. So anyway, enough heavy stuff. I know it's Labor Day. We're kicking back. We are relaxing, having fun, talking cars. Maybe you're working on your car right now. Um, I got a couple more things to talk about. This is going to be fun and uh, going to talk about a Rivian that helped in, of all things, a vasectomy. Yeah, that's coming up next. And now for how things work with an engineer. Engines. Speed. And that was how things work with an engineer. 
For more of how things work, go to patreon.com slash throttlewarrior. Oh yeah, that car sound is courtesy of Artem and his 1986 TVR 280i. This is a very, very cool car. Uh, that is, by the way, the TVR Tasman, I should clarify, the Tasman 280i. Um, Artem sent in a car sound a couple weeks back. If his name sounds familiar, that's because I talked at length about another car that he owns, which is another TVR. It's a TVR Cerbra, um, and very specifically, a very special TVR Cerbra that was um, featured in magazines, that was famous, it was on Ed Bolian's Car Trek, that specific one. Uh, Artem has some interesting cars. Now, he says, he sent that car sound in, he said that TVR is his daily driver. He dailies that thing, it's bright yellow with, it's a two-tone yellow and black, gorgeous, um, and uh, this is also somewhat of a famous car, uh, because that specific TVR Tasman was in Motor Trend. It was featured in Motor Trend back in uh, 2017. So uh, that is uh, that is very cool. You know, he's got some very cool cars. I think TVRs are such a underappreciated car, especially here in the United States. We don't really know what TVR is. If you're not really into cars, you've probably not heard of TVR. They are a British sports car manufacturer, and they've made all sorts of quirky, strange, eclectic cars. And I think they're quite cool. So anyway, Artem, thank you for sending that car sound in. Of course, if you want to send car sounds into the show, get entered for a chance to win the keychain, the sticker. Yeah, the stickers are in finally. Also, a $25 gift certificate to an auto parts store. Help hook you up with some car parts. Uh, the stickers, by the way, quick update on that. Oh, man, I have I, I have had a tough time with sticker shops on that, but I have them in hand. I know I have a list of people who are waiting for them. I know. I feel bad that I have had to delay you, um, and uh, that's okay, though. Those are going out this week, so your, your, your patience on this is greatly appreciated, and I think it will be worth it. The stickers, the As Heard on the Automotive ADHD Show stickers are very cool. I'm, I'm stoked with how they came out. Again, I had, I had some challenges between a couple of sticker shops, between delays. Apparently, vinyl for stickers, um, the price on them shot up, and it's also... Um, uh, in shorter supply now, and that's because they make vinyl from petroleum, and then the whole gas price thing that happened over the summer, that screwed up a lot of the stuff, even for vinyl, so, which, you know, it's what the stickers are made out of, so, anyway, good stuff, uh, now, what I want to talk about here is, <laughs> this is funny, okay, so, all right, there is a gentleman, uh, and uh, this happened in Austin, Texas. Uh, Christopher Yang is a doctor who specializes in doing uh, vasectomies, which, um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you Google what vasectomies are. It, it has something to do with the man's plums, we'll say. I'll say it that way. That's a, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, with, a, with, with the twig and berries, right? So uh, anyway, so what, what, what happened here is this doctor was performing a vasectomy on a gentleman, and uh, <laughs> and the power went out at this doctor's clinic. Uh, the power goes out, complete power outage. And the doctor is using an electric uh, cauterizing device and uh, something to cauterize, say, a wound. It, it burns it so that it burns the tissue and, and does things that, I, you know, what? I'm not a doctor. I talk about cars. Uh, anyway, he had an important piece of equipment uh, that needed to be electrically powered. So he said, aha, 
I know what I'll do. He has a Rivian RT1, which is Rivian's pickup truck. It is an electric truck. I've talked before about how I think trucks are prime candidates for electrification, namely because of torque, namely because of... um, the fact that they tend to have more space and you're usually not driving a truck as much for driver involvement as you are a sports car. Uh, I do think electric trucks, they make a good amount of sense, though it has been hit or miss in how much they can tow and for how long. Electric batteries just still aren't there with the energy density of gasoline. You're not towing something as far with an electric truck as you are with a gas or diesel truck still. But in principle, they are really cool. And this doctor had an Rivian RT1, which the RT1 has the ability to have uh, several uh, 110 volt wall outlets um, for household products and all sorts of things. And it, you can even use it to you could anything you can plug into the wall in your house, you can plug into the Rivian and it's going to work at least up to a certain wattage. I don't know what the uh, the wattage specifications are. Um, and uh, that said, uh, what's what's amazing here is he told his patient, hey, so power's gone out, uh, but I'm going to use my truck. That cool. And the guy, the dude having his nads worked on is was uh, <laughs> was totally cool. That He's like, yeah, that's no problem. No, do do what you need to do. And uh, <laughs> so the doctor takes his cord, extension cord, runs it out of his clinic to his pickup truck and at least has someone watching it, you know, making sure no one tries to unplug it or something stupid and uh, then continues uh, to do his operation and has a successful, successfully completed vasectomy on this uh, gentleman. And this dude, the dude getting this work done, I mean, he's got to have balls of steel to do this. Or, well, had balls of steel, I guess. You know, he's had a vasectomy. <laughs> That's not how that works. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but that said, it was, um, yeah, I, this is probably the first Rivian-powered vasectomy to uh, happen uh, in the world, perhaps. And Rivian, you know, if Rivian's listening to this, uh, I, you know, I, I'm confident they are. I'm definitely confident they are. Uh, they should take note and say, yes, this is... We need to send this to our marketing department, and we need to we need to promote this. The first Rivian-powered vasectomy. This is this is a t- you know a testimony to our product's quality and uh, practicality. <laughs> I'm sure they're not going to run ads about this, but they should. They should. If I was on their marketing department, I would I would I would run with this all the way up until the point the executive said, no, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. I, I would run with this if I was on their marketing team. It's probably a reason I'm not on their marketing team. But anyway, uh, yeah, there you go. Isn't that a fun story for uh, for Labor Day, by the way? I, I, isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Um and uh, the the doctor who was performing this operation was uh, very resourceful. And uh, again, the patient who agreed to this whole ordeal, um, props to him as well. Props to him. That's uh, that's good stuff. So anyway, hey, there you go. I want to thank you for joining me on this Labor Day edition of the Automotive ADHD show. This, of course, is the correct car show. You've tuned into the right one, at least. What other car shows are talking about car-powered vasectomies? This is the right place, or maybe the wrong place, but you're here anyway, so what What can I say? Now, remember to uh, give this podcast a rating. If you're listening on Spotify, Spotify lets you do ratings. Go click on the ratings. It's got five stars. Click on six. Six stars. We'll make them add a whole six star just for this mediocre car show. And remember, send in your car sounds. You can win free stuff. I do the drawing at every month. Um, and, uh, oh, that reminds me. I have to do the drawing for August. 
Yeah, I didn't do it yet. Oh, no. Okay, it's I was waiting until I got the stickers in hand for sure. I didn't want to pile up any other people waiting for stickers. They're in hand. They rock. They are awesome. You can put the stickers on on whatever you want. I mean, yeah, it's a car show. Yeah, you could put the sticker on your car, but you could put it on your refrigerator. You could put it on your oven. You could put it on your toilet. I don't care what you do with it. They say any publicity is good publicity, right? Uh, probably don't do something really horrible with it. Just don't do that. I'll, I'll leave that up to your, your discretion, though. It's really good stuff. So anyway, hey, thank you for listening to this edition of the show. And I will see you right here, same time, same place, next week. 